welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Nicole Ruggiano, who is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Alabama. We talk about Nicole's research on dementia and how it led to working with the community of Tuskegee, where there is a history of unethical and racist practices by researchers. Nicole shares about the challenges facing rural communities and the importance of researchers, academics, and practitioners in supporting self-determination among individuals, families, and communities. Nicole urges listeners to get involved with policy advocacy and provides examples of how to do so. I hope you enjoy the conversation. For this episode of Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, I am here with Dr. Nicole Ruggiano, Associate Professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Alabama. Nicole is a John A. Hartford Geriatric Social Work Scholar. Hey, Nicole, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Shimon. I'm really excited to talk with you about what you're currently up to. So maybe you could just start with that. So as you mentioned, I'm a John A. Hartford social work, geriatric social work scholar. And what that means is that as a researcher and a social worker, I've focused a lot of my career on aging and issues of aging. And part of that has been in dementia care, dementia caregiving, which has led me to a lot of the work that I'm currently doing in Alabama. First of all, I started my career in Miami, Florida, which is, has no shortage of older people. And so a lot of the work that we've done there has been developing interventions for caregivers of people with dementia to help them navigate the health and social service arenas. But now I'm in Alabama and uh, dealing with a lot of rural issues and dementia, and that's been a lot different than what I've seen in more urban areas. That kind of goes right into the next question I was going to ask you, which is, what are the unique challenges facing the population that you're working with? Well, so in rural Alabama, and this is the first time I've lived in a rural area. I grew up in Philadelphia. I moved to Miami as an adult, and now I live in Birmingham. But really, my work takes place across the whole entire state of Alabama. Uh, because the rural communities are very much spread out and they're very much in need of services. So here we have individuals who they are living far apart from services or maybe if they need multiple services, those are far away from one another. Uh, They have to rely very heavily on a car. Internet service, high-speed internet might not be available. And so the issue of access is significant. And so um, I've been all over in northern Alabama, western, southern Alabama. And in fact, one day I was on a way to uh, working in a rural community and I made a wrong turn and I ended up in Mississippi. So I've learned a lot (laughs) about um, doing work in rural areas. And what kind of work are you doing? You mentioned access being a major issue and people needing services. Are those the kind of interventions that you're doing? Yes, definitely. So how this started was my group has been developing a caregiving app for dementia caregivers to use in uh, in partnership with the people with dementia, their providers. And so 
what my current study is doing is going across the state and showing the app to caregivers, and it's not available for download or purchase yet, but showing them a prototype of it and getting their opinions. And so within these interviews, I have found so many things that have been problematic for these caregivers that, for instance, uh, many caregivers said that they would like to participate in caregiver support groups, but they can't leave the person that they're caring for alone for up to an hour so they can drive 30, 45 minutes each way or more to get to a caregiver support group. Or there's another problem that much of the dementia care in these areas are uh, dealt with by primary care physicians and not specialists. And so they might not have the extensive training that's needed to deal with a complex condition like dementia. So one woman who was in a focus group mentioned her father was diagnosed with a term that I later found out has not been used in neurology for over 30 years. So in addition to pursuing big research projects, I've also been applying for smaller blocks of money um, 10,000, 20,000, and that it doesn't sound big, but it's, you know, it, it sounds like a good amount of money, but in terms of developing a new program, that gets used up very quickly. Right, right. That's going to go very quickly. So, what kind of programs are these that you're developing? So right now I have two grants pending for two different programs related to the work that I've learned through my research. And so one is to develop private Facebook groups to use them as a platform for developing dementia caregiving support groups. So people who are in rural areas uh, but have access to Facebook, which is a very familiar for many people um, electronic platform. Uh, and it's also free, so we don't have to pay for licensing or the development of the software. You can develop private groups where we only invite people who are part of the program in, and they can participate in a support group with people from all other places in Alabama. And this is beneficial for a number of reasons, uh, that people have others who are experiencing the same thing. Uh, to talk to about their feelings and the stress and burden that they're experiencing, but also to learn from one another and learn strategies on how to deal with difficult behaviors of the person they're caring for. And what um, what kind of timeline are you looking at with these projects? Well, that project, we're looking at uh, a year-long project and uh, basically trying to see the feasibility of having two or three groups. Now, I'm not the first person to invent this concept. I have colleagues in Missouri who are actually doing this with hospice caregivers, and they have um, a large research grant to do this with hospice caregivers that they draw from the same hospice center. So they pick some hospice centers and talk to the people there if they want to participate. The difference with my project is I want to reach out to people who aren't really getting a lot of services and that they can get more connected. And so if we can demonstrate that that grant is a $6,000 grant, and so it's very small, and the plan is to have social work students run the support groups, but if we can demonstrate that it's feasible, then that would give us the information we need to ask the federal government for some more money, maybe $100,000 or um, 275000 Those are the sizes of different grants to do a larger project. And so technically, it's still considered research, but it's also putting services and resources in the hands that people need them. Absolutely. And the second 
project you're working on? The other project I'm working on, and this is, uh, so in Tuskegee, Alabama, which has a terrible history of um, healthcare practices and research practices. Um, and so it's not necessarily an easy, an easy community to do health research in. And so as a health researcher, uh, and I've been doing these interviews, as I mentioned, I had somebody from Tuskegee call me and say, we have a caregiver support group. Would you be able to interview the support group in a single interview? So I said, okay. And so I plan to do a focus group in the community. And I said, how many people will probably be there? And she said, maybe five, six, seven. So uh, when I showed up there, about 20 people had been there. And what I found is that we even had to abandon the face, the focus group questions that I prepared because they wanted to talk about how there's nothing there for them. They don't have enough information about dementia. They can't talk to the providers there and they don't think the, the providers are prepared. So using that information, there is a community foundation of Central, Central Alabama and they provide grants for health and well-being uh, for families. Uh, projects that target that. And so for a $25,000 grant, I proposed a full day conference uh, that would be for caregivers, but also for physicians, nurses, and social workers. And part of the money would actually go to, uh, to purchase and, and process their CEUs to get them to come out and do it. And so caregivers and providers in Tuskegee can learn about dementia from experts across the country that we bring in as part of the project. So this is information that none of these people would necessarily have access to. And so for a full day, they can receive education and training, but also because the caregivers report that they don't think that the providers understand what they're going through. And this way they can learn side by side and also develop a mutual understanding about what's going on with dementia care in the community. I think that's so amazing for a number of reasons. And one that, you know, you went out there and you had a certain plan, but then you were responsive to the needs of the community. Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, so it's interesting. When I first went to Tuskegee for that first focus group, and when I learned how little there was in the community and how much pain that these individuals are experiencing because they don't feel like they have, they're provided all the tools that they need in order to provide good care and to make good healthcare decisions about the people they're taking care of. And so, I mean, I left there in tears, uh, you know, after I left, just seeing how stressful it was for them. And what I recognize is that some of these communities that we work in, and including Tuskegee, has had so many people beforehand turn their backs on them. And so I decided that's not what I wanted to do. And it's not an easy community for me to access. It's a two-hour drive each way. So, uh, But since that first focus group, I've gone back and have done educational sessions with caregivers. I'm doing another one next month. Um, and so this is any, anything that I get paid in addition for or as part of my job duties but making sure that they get the information that they need. And it also is helpful because the more I can get individuals to come out and more people come out every time I come back. So the more I can get them engaged, the easier it is for support. So for example, at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, which is different than the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa where I am, 
they have a large medical school with the neurology department. And I work with the neurologist on some of my research. And when I told them about going to Tuskegee and how many people are coming out, they started asking if they can come with me in future trips and do talks because they actually would like to connect with um, the caregivers and people with dementia in the community for some of their projects and some of the um, services they offer. And we even started talking about the potential of having uh, free telemedicine sessions where they can get um, evaluations and assessments that UAB will use as they try to learn more about dementia, but also would be a free resource and something that's educational for the people living in Tuskegee. So making those connections are very important because the neurologists don't think from their perspective, oh, I need to go to the community centers and do talks once a month. But that's what a social worker would think. Right. And that's a great partnership to have and provide that education to them. So they, and then, and then that they know this community is going to be responsive. Yes. I mean, they, it's about trust in these communities and so they trust me. And so if I can bring people who not only do I trust, but I trust would not take advantage of these opportunities in, in a wrong way. That's what's very important to me. What's the biggest challenge of this work for you? I actually think for rural uh, social work, it is the distance because you're spending a lot of time just getting to where you need to be. So if I'm trying to have meetings and they're five hours away each way, it takes up a lot of time. Whereas if you're in more of an urban area, it's very easy to get to meetings and, and to meet with people in the community. Uh, so I would actually say the distance is probably one of the biggest hurdles. And there's really no way around that at this point. I mean, there's no no fix for that. No, there isn't. And so, and especially when you're dealing with older people, they, older people are using technology now more today than they were before. But for the purpose of things like teleconferencing and things that are a little more sophisticated, that can't be expected in these communities. So to think that we could teleconference via Skype that might not be feasible. <laughs> right. Right. And also the trust factor. I mean, it's very hard to build trust that way. I mean, I will say as a, a white woman doing research in Tuskegee, I'm very surprised about um, the response that I've had. And I think a lot of it is that they saw me come back. They see me coming back and I'm responding to what they want. So the talks that I give to them are the topics that they tell me they know nothing about and they want to learn more. That's great. Yeah, that's what I was saying before that I think is just so important is that you basically ditched your questions that you had planned and you were like, I'm going to go with what they need. And not not all researchers do that. Well, not all researchers and honestly, not all social workers. I think from a provider's standpoint, we tend to look at things like self-determination and, um, and, and what's best for the client is what we think is best for the client. So I've read so much about what is called watered-down self-determination, where a social worker might say, I'm going to let you decide on what you want to do, but it's going to be either choices A, B, or C, because I think those are the best choices. And that's not necessarily self-determination. It's basically saying, 
you can pick from whatever I feel is acceptable. Absolutely. Watered down self-determination. Yeah. Well, and especially when we're dealing with older people, research shows that social workers tend to have a more difficult time promoting self-determination because they view the population as vulnerable. And so sometimes we really have to think about whether the decision somebody's making, to what extent are they able to make that decision? And if they're making a risky decision, is it something that they still have the right to make? Absolutely. So one of the aspects of this podcast that I wanted to do that's a little different than some other ones is just to ask on a more personal level, how did you get into this work, this area, you know, this field, however you want to answer that question? Well, I think my first times uh, thinking about aging and health were actually after my grandfather, and I think as social workers, we all have some personal story. But when my grandfather had a stroke, this was the first time I had to start taking him and my grandmother to their doctor's visit. And I realized that they asked no questions. The doctor would just give them a prescription. They didn't ask anything about it or advocate for themselves. And I realized that we have a health and social service system that really treats older people like they're passive service users. And so I wanted to do a lot more to promote uh, self-advocacy, health literacy, and self-determination and autonomy of older people. And so uh, when I was a Hartford Scholar, part of that was a $100,000 grant to conduct a research project. And I focused on how older adults with chronic conditions, not dementia or cognitive decline, but how do those with conditions like cancer and heart disease and other conditions, how do they make decisions about their care and how do they interact with the professionals that they receive care for up from? And I learned a lot about how little control they felt, not that they had, but what people allowed them to have, that they felt like it was very constrained, that people hide information from them, that they don't give them the entire information. Uh, But at the same time, I started to do some work with dementia care, and I learned that caregivers were going through some of the similar things. Uh, And so I looked at both groups, older adults with chronic conditions and caregivers, as being these individuals in the health and social service systems that really needed a lot of support so that they can make decisions that best help reach their quality of life that they would like to achieve. It's fascinating. So this, how long ago was this when you kind of started down, down this path? Oh my goodness. Well, let's see. It was while I was a graduate student. So maybe like the, like the mid 2000s. So it was some time ago, uh, but it takes a lot when you're an academic to uh, build, build a career. And so, you know, here we are in 2018 And I got my PhD about 10 years ago. So I'm just now at the point where I can go for larger grants and um, have more autonomy in my work. Uh, Not having to worry about tenure anymore allows me to write papers, to go for research grants, but also to promote these projects as well. I'm also very active in public policy and connecting with legislators and other public policy uh, figures and letting them know what is going on in the front lines. That's, that's awesome. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping to really get 
talking about with people too is that link between practice research and policy advocacy what's the biggest challenge of this work in terms of real social change what are the barriers there well oh goodness let's that could be a whole podcast yeah we could do a whole another <laughs> episode about that <laughs> well in terms of the work that i'm doing i think that there are a lot of stereotypes about aging and older people that prevent us to to look at them as just adults, that we separate them from all the rest of the adults, and there's something very specific about older people. And there are people with cognitive decline, there are people with advanced dementia, and they might not have the capacity to make everyday decisions about themselves. But when we have uh, entire policies and program systems that treat all older people as if they're extremely vulnerable and not able to make decisions on their own. That's a big challenge. So getting past the larger system barriers that are based on our stereotypes, that is very problematic. And I think that, you know, just needing more advocacy for older people is important as well. What kind of policy change in Alabama are you currently working on? So in Alabama, um, Right now, I'm actually, because I'm new to Alabama, I'm fairly new. I've only lived here a year and a half. So right now, my main work is to try to connect with legislators. I think one of the first things that you need to do is to develop a relationship with legislators so that they're more open to what you have to say. And also that when they have questions about what's going on in the community, they come to you. So at the university, I actually started an initiative that's been in full support of our dean and faculty. Uh, I, and it's, it's going to be hot off the press very soon. Uh, we came up with a 12-page booklet, and it was call, it's called the um, uh, School of Social Work Faculty Expert Guide. And it actually highlights you know, what our faculty can do with their expertise and knowledge, not just in their research, but in the communities that they work in, what can they do for legislators? So the fact that we have information about communities and how these larger issues we hear on CNN and Fox News and the national networks, how those are being played out in our local communities, we can answer those questions. And that we know enough about policy and research on policy that we can tell them what policies have worked and not have worked in other areas. And so uh, one, once that is in print, I'm actually going to start meeting with legislators next month in Washington and then in Montgomery and just do a lot of handshaking and say, hi, this is who I am. This is what our school of social work can do for you. And so here's this booklet. It has a picture of all the faculty who wanted to be listed as a faculty expert and their contact information. And did you do anything like that in Florida? Did you have relationships with legislators? Well, Florida is a lot bigger in size than Alabama. So I would say on the state level, no. But I will say in the local level, yes. So I actually gave talks for the mayor's initiative on aging about transportation and health for older adults. Um, and I worked with a lot of advocacy organizations like the United Way of Florida, uh, where I gave talks about policy advocacy among health and human service providers, and also worked with the United Way of Miami-Dade County to give them information about um, 
how to best invest money for older people. And I also worked with the um, Alliance for Aging in Miami, which is the area agency on aging. So I will say I did more on the local level in uh, Miami, whereas uh, Alabama, I feel like I need to do more on the state level. Right. And part of that is probably because of the rural areas and how spread out everything is, right? That it, if you're local, you're not going to get to the to what's going on in all of those areas. Correct. So going to the state legislators and finding out who's best to talk to. So for instance, two of our state legislators worked on a state task force for Alzheimer's, and they actually concluded that we need more technology-based solutions in order to reach vulnerable populations. Well, I need to be in the offices of those legislators because that's exactly what I'm doing is trying to get more technology in the hands of caregivers of people with Alzheimer's. And how did you make that connection that they, you know, how did you do the research onto these people and know that they were on this um, committee and that they had been part of this uh, finding? Well, in doing my research just on Alabama, because, you know, if we want to do intervention work locally, we need to know what's there, what's needed. And so I came across the task force report and their names were right on it. So those would be two people that I would take this expert guide, call up their office, say to their legislative aides, who should I talk to in your office about this? And then make an appointment and introduce myself. That's great. I think that's great for people, for the listeners to hear that and follow similar models in their areas. Of course, it'll be different based on the area. Well, what was really funny, we had a faculty meeting where I presented the expert guide and uh, there were some field staff. So these are people who are MSW level social workers who are working more with students and with um, individuals who are working in the field with our students. And when I started talking about the expert guide, one of the, the people from the field raised their hand. They said, you know, I've done a lot of work in child welfare. Do you think it would be appropriate if I was listed as an expert? And I said, yes, you do not need to have a PhD or, you know, be at a university even to be an expert in an area. If you're in the trenches every single day, you have knowledge to take to, to those legislators and let them know what's going on in the communities that they represent. That's so absolutely true and so refreshing to hear that coming from someone who does have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said, I think what my comment was, being a PhD doesn't really make you an expert, but maybe I shouldn't say that in a room full of PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that went over well. <laughs> So, but yeah, I mean, our practice experience is really what makes us special as social workers and makes us um, a unique perspective to give to legislators. Nicole, how can folks listening to the podcast support the work you're doing? Well, I take donations for all of these projects <laughs> that I'm mentioning, um, but I think that the support needed is for everybody to find ways of working together in order to develop evidence-based practice and evidence-based policy. So it's not necessarily that your listeners need to support me, but I think that they need to find out who are the major stakeholders in the areas that they are working in, whether it's at the policy level or a state level, executive branch, whether it's university faculty, uh, who is it that has the same mission and goals 
that they have that they can work together in new ways to really promote social justice and um, and access to services in the areas that they're working. Is there anything else you'd like to say or mention while you're on here? Well, I think that we shouldn't be scared of policy advocacy. That's something that is well known that social workers do not typically feel prepared, and I've talked a lot about that. Um, but also remembering that we are experts. I think when social workers are in multidisciplinary settings, other disciplines don't necessarily understand what we do, and sometimes we end up being undervalued for our skills. And so I feel like it's social workers, we need to stand up and say, we are experts, we have all of this knowledge and these skills, and that we bring a very important component to, um, to the client population, to what they need. And so uh, not feeling that, um, I guess, feeling empowered as a social worker, as opposed to just somebody who's always in tow with other professionals, that we are there because we're important. We have something to contribute. Absolutely. I think that's so critical. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on here. And thank you for doing the work in your community and all the work you do to improve things for other people. And I look forward to hearing more about how these projects are going over time. Well, maybe we can do a follow-up episode. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.